Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, everyone. We're glad to have you here with us for episode 55. And today we're going to be once again talking about COVID. We we wish we didn't have to, but such is life. Um, you know, part of the reason we're going to be talking about this is there's a lot going on with COVID. Uh, the FDA very recently gave full approval for the Pfizer vaccine. So under the name, oh, it's a it's a it's a weird name, Dan. I don't know if you've heard it yet. I don't know why they decided to name it something weird instead of calling it, you know, something. But they call it uh, Comirnaty. Comirnaty? Comirnaty. I don't know how they pronounce it, but it's stupid. Anyways. I, I have not heard or seen that. That's... So I'm excited for people to t- start talking That's... about how they didn't get the COVID vaccine. They got Comirnaty. That's the name of the vaccine. Yes. That's that's the it, that's the, the the brand name of the Pfizer vaccine. Anyways, it, this is not this is neither here nor there to our discussion. <laughs> no, but now I'm curious. Why on earth did they give it a different name? What what was wrong with Pfizer vaccine? Because because that that's how that's, that's how that's the, the pharmaceutical company, they, they world something. works. Okay, yeah, okay. And we just forgot about it because we've been so caught up in calling them the COVID vaccines that they actually have names. Huh. Anyways, so that's the first big thing that's happened, you know, and of course, yeah. as as part of that, they're already talking about uh, uh, vaccine mandates. The uh, U.S. Surgeon General talked about how now that it's going to be approved, and I think he said this right before it was approved, that it should encourage businesses and others to uh, require vaccinations and individuals should get vaccinated now that it has full approval. It is weird uh, that it's approved. Generally, approval waits for the long-term trials. Uh, the, obviously, they haven't. So, fair enough. Whatever this approval means, I feel like it probably has some political motivations behind it, which is fine. I mean, <laughs> everything does at this point. <laughs> would be weird as if it didn't have political motivations behind it. But that being said, I mean... <laughs> It's it's probably safe. As we've said before, these vaccines seem to be extremely safe. Whatever risk they have long term is probably minimal. And though there are a few red flags, it's, you know, it's, it's unlikely. Whatever, whatever, whatever the case, it's unlikely. The question was never, our question has never been how safe are the vaccines per se. It's how safe are the vaccines relative to how dangerous is COVID to you. Mm-hmm. And that's the, mm-hmm. that's where we've spent most of our time discussing COVID. Yep. And so then the other thing, the other thing that's going on, of course, is the the spread of the variants and the increasing number of COVID cases worldwide. worldwide. At this point, I think it's either the highest it's ever been or very close to the highest it's ever been in term of in terms of case rates, not necessarily in terms of hospitalizations, but at least in terms of uh, case rates, it's incredibly, incredibly high. And and something that I want to talk about real quick before we, we dive into our main topic of conversation, Dan, is, you know, we've been talking about the, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about, you know, the COVID-19 pivot with the Delta variants. We've talked about the Dark Horse mm-hmm. podcast, and they've talked about, about these similar ideas w- where... Sometimes we feel like we're getting mixed messages from from these these media companies and media sites, and that's something that I've definitely felt is true. And it's something that's interesting now as these COVID course cases are soaring, is that we keep talking about they keep talking about how we need to increase the rate of vaccination. That is our only solution, our only answer. And yet you look at countries like Israel, which were ahead of the curve on vaccination rates and yet are now falling prey to extremely high COVID cases. And so the question then becomes, you know, when you have the proof is in the pudding looking at countries that have been successful at vaccination, what are you going, you know, what is this going to accomplish? The other thing that I found really interesting, Dan, is that They've been really misleading about the numbers. You know, when they talk about Israel, they say Israel has a 78% vaccination rate amongst those older than 12. 
And that sounds super high. And then they talk about how the U.S. only has a 51% vaccination rate. But is that 51% those older than 12, or is that actually a population-wide one? And it turns out it's actually a population-wide one. Well, Really? Well, Israel only has a 60% vaccination rate for the whole population, which is not crazy high compared to the United States. And yet when they use these different numbers, it makes them look totally different, which is incredibly misleading, incredibly misleading to say, oh, it's 51% versus 60% versus saying it's 51% versus 78%. Yes, that's a world of difference. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And then, you know, so for example, here I'm reading in, in CNN, they're talking about the vaccination rate, specifically talking about the full approval, and they say, you know, 51.5% of the population has been vaccinated. And they're saying, if we're going to halt this virus transmission, we're going to have to get 80 to 85%, which is a crazy, crazy high if you're talking in terms of the total population. But they never specify which numbers they're talking about. The only thing they want to get across is that we're not even close, you know, is that it needs to be way more. And it's mm-hmm. that uh, it's that toddler messaging once again is they, <laughs> their whole goal here is to get people to take the vaccine. And they have no qualms about how they get people to do that. Yeah, it's the wartime messaging. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's Absolutely. The, what's important is that people act in the way that we de- that we think they should. And whatever means necessary is fine. Um, at some point, I've, at some point, they have to realize that this is backfiring. That they would have been better off being straightforward with people. You were, you were by destroying. First off, it's too transparent. The fact that the fact that there is deception going on is too transparent. People know it at this point, which means that beyond that, in the crowd of people that do know they're being lied to, the crowd of people that that is often things like uh, anti-vaxxers and things that largely have, have determined, right, that they're being lied to on a large scale. If you are at that point, then it's extremely likely that you are not going to listen to the propaganda, right? You're not going to be persuaded because someone's given you some, some new numbers. You already have decided that these news sources are not trustworthy. It's one of those cases where wartime messaging may have short-term gains, or at least appear to have short-term gains, but it's absolutely going to be worse in the long run because you destroy trust. And when you destroy trust in the, in the long run, you end up, you end up getting to this point where, where really you are never going to, it's not that people are waking up now. So many people were never going to listen to this propaganda. Mm-hmm. So many people were, were from the outset. In fact, if people had tried the truth, they probably wouldn't have listened to it because they were so used to propaganda, right? <laughs> That's what they expect. Uh, it's really, it's just bad faith arguments to try and get people to behave in a way that you think is necessary is a, is a bad call tactically. Mm-hmm. It's a bad choice mm-hmm. to, in the long run, you destroy your own credibility. And at that point, even when you're right, you're not going to be able to persuade people. It's the boy who cried wolf is the, this, the way you teach this message to children, <laughs> but, but it seems to be a message that we need over and over again. Yeah, but that's not the main. Oh, go ahead. Well, Sorry. I was I was gonna I was gonna to respond add to that, to that because I noticed I noticed just a couple of days ago that on CNN's homepage they had an article about ivermectin, which I thought was interesting <laughs> because the headline of that article never used the word ivermectin. You know, it says the title is FDA warns against using anti-parasitic drug for COVID-19 after reports of hospitalizations. And then this article goes on to talk about how people are using ivermectin. And in the article, they do use the name ivermectin. They just won't use it in the headline. And how people are using ivermectin to treat COVID-19 and it's very dangerous and the reason they cite it's dangerous is because people are using ivermectin from non non-prescribed sources there and they're usually getting them for for pets for horses and other animals and those are the wrong doses and so people are getting sick 
As far as I can tell from this article, no one's actually died from this, but at least some people have gotten sick. Most of them have only gotten mild symptoms. But it's so interesting because this article talks about the fact that that this is such a huge problem that CNN wants to put this on their homepage, that people are getting sick from ivermectin. And yet, no one's even died from it. And it talks about how they just looked at a study, and they're not even sure if it helps with COVID. Which means there's a chance that it absolutely could help with COVID. And they've admitted that that's technically a possibility. And yet, they're so confident that this is the worst thing you could do that they put up this article. And it's that it's that messaging thing all over again where anyone who's already heard about ivermectin, I don't know how this would convince them. The whole purpose of an article like this is the scare tactic, is for someone to read this article before they ever hear about ivermectin so that they're kind of inoculated to that idea. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh no, I already saw about that from the FDA. That's something they give to horses and it's not going to help with COVID and it might just kill you. (laughs) It's kind of like with the you know, the the hydroxychloroquine back with Trump, you know, you hear about the old couple who who took it and died because of it, and it inoculates you to the idea of ever doing something like that. And that's exactly right, what, what the, these articles are, and it's it's so clearly propaganda, and it's so clearly misleading that it just, it's designed to help people get the vaccine and do nothing else. But the cost of that is that it's turning people away from the news in a very strong way. Because I read this and I'm like, I know what I know what the facts are and the facts are more complicated than they're portraying it here. And and they're clearly being misleading. And so it tells me, yes, be very careful of what you're reading from these media organizations because they have no problem misleading you to accomplish their agenda. Yeah, that that article is so funny to me because it it, it avoids the main argument, right? Which is is COVID nineteen good for is COVID nineteen good for ivermectin? Uh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but ivermectin does seem like it's very good for COVID nineteen if you want to get rid of it. Um, but the so they could they could argue that they could say they could go through medical data and they could talk about whether ivermectin is is uh beneficial related to COVID-19. They don't do that. They avoid that entirely in this article, other than to suggest that it's not clear, right? Or that it's, that it's, there's no hard proof that yeah, it's good, yeah. for, good exactly. for COVID-19. Then there's a second argument that they can make. They can make the argument that ivermectin is dangerous to you. They don't make that either in, in reasonable doses. They don't make that either because it's not. Ivermectin is one of the most harmless thing medicines out there from what i've read that it has virtually no side effects right if you look at the side effects it has the things that you have to put because it's possible that it causes headaches and things like that the problem is that people are taking horse doses of ivermectin specifically because the fda will not give any kind of emergency use authorization for human doses which would be the the obvious solution to that problem Right, right. Which if, yeah, if this is a problem, then give us the human dosage, which is, which is, you can actually get in many other countries because it's commonly used, which mm-hmm. is why there's so much data on it, but, but not in the US, uh, which well, is, and, and you can is, get it in the US, just not for COVID. Can, right. Just not for COVID. Right. Right. <laughs> but anyway, the whole thing is just so it's, it's disingenuous at so many levels to hit you with this idea. The ivermectin's for animals. And that the problem is that you're taking it something for animals. And there's a, there's a tweet that's quoted in there from the FDA about you're not a horse, you're not a cow. And it's like, which, which shows you the level of concern they have that they're cracking a joke, that they're, <laughs> that they're trying to connect the dots in this way mm-hmm. so that you see it as a bad thing. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just so weak. It's so weak. It's so weak, but as you said, someone who wasn't familiar with ivermectin might read that, and then they have the right bias, so that when they do encounter arguments in favor of, of ivermectin, they already have this, like, oh no, there's something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. 
It's mm-hmm. just, it's, mm-hmm. it's disingenuous. It's weak. It's manipulative. It's, it's sick. And it's, and it's normal. It's so normal. <laughs> this is, this is what news is at this point. Absolutely. But rather than, re- yeah, rather than rehash so many of the, the way that the news worked and the, and the manipulations and things, the, the, or the arguments regarding risk and the vaccines and things that we've already discussed. We want to discuss something that is entirely new for us. I mean, we touched on it. We've, we've kind of run over it. We've, we've, uh, we've mentioned it in passing, but we want to get into the details because it is something that takes a great deal of time to explore and something that we've been thinking about over the course of this whole encounter with COVID because we didn't have to before. It was such mm-hmm. a, of such narrow application. Yeah, and and I, and I would I would say that we we touched on this briefly on our very first episode about COVID, which was our third episode we ever published over a year ago now. And when we talked about, you know, the 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 risk benefit and about how everyone should be everyone should be assessing their own risk. And that was kind of our moral conclusion. But as as this time of vaccine mandates is coming around, and people are talking about your moral responsibility to those around you. It's something that we want to get into, especially because lately when we've been talking about COVID, we've been talking about the uh, the more practical, pragmatic side of it. You know? Yeah, yeah. What are effective, given the way the world works? Yeah, what should you do? Yeah. In it? What are the effective treatments against COVID? Are the vaccines effective? Are the mask mandates effective? Are there other avenues to deal with COVID? What is the actual threat to COVID to the average individual, to the average society? All of these different factors, looking at it from a more, you know, virologist perspective, you know, what are we going to do about this virus? But instead, we want to focus on the moral question today of what responsibility do we as individuals have to protect others from the virus. Because that is the argument behind the mask mandates. That is the argument behind potential vaccine mandates. I mean, not there are already large organizations, the military, um, lots of uh, federal offices. I think it's uh, New York City now, as of a couple days ago or very recently, is requiring that all educators state educators be vaccinated or they they lose their jobs so there are large groups that are requiring mandates for the vaccine Mm -hmm. and so we want to look into what the moral justification for that is right as usual this is this is we're looking at it from the perspective of justice which is to say at what point can you force someone to do it at what point uh at what point should there be consequences for someone's choices beyond the social, beyond social consequences, be actual things like, like uh, jail time or fines or those kind of things. At what point, at what point am I justified in using violence to stop someone else who has spread the virus? That's the point at which government should become involved. That's the Mm -hmm. point at which, that's the point at which, at which force is justified and therefore some kind of action that is normally what we think of as government action is justified, which, which is, which sets aside or at least makes tangential the ideas of, of can a business mm-hmm. impose this? Yeah. And be just. Yes. It's their property. It's their things. If they want to set the rules for how you observe it. Absolutely. That's a different question. The question here is at what point should you be thrown in jail? You know, at what point should or something like that? Right. That's, that is a very different question. Um, and, and that's the point at which we want to discuss it. Where do we start? <laughs> there, the, the problem with this is there's so many complexities. First off, uh, this is very different than other topics, right? If I, if I'm talking to you about something like property rights or, or bodily harm or, uh, these things have clear physical lines mm-hmm. and these things have principles by which they operate, right? We could say that, uh, that there's certain things that are yours and certain things that are mine and in however you want to define ownership, things that you have control of and which it would be immoral for me to cross that line. The lines around COVID are very different. They're very different. And 
fundamentally, the reason they're different, and, we, and this is something we had to explore at length before we came to any kind of conclusion. <laughs> we asked a lot of questions that led us nowhere before we finally <laughs> felt like we, we were asking the right questions. Uh, so our first claim, I guess, our first major claim is that to understand the morality around the virus, you have to understand the person with the virus and their culpability is slightly different. And maybe the best way to illustrate this is by, by analogy, by comparison with other things. If I'm driving a car and I deliberately run someone over, obviously I'm responsible because I'm in control of the car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that it was just an extension of my own agency. And if I run them over, I'm guilty of murder yeah, or you're, assault. If they you're survive. responsible. You're culpable. Right. You were the direct cause of the accident of the event that occurred. Right. And there are, now, and there are factors that can mitigate that. You know, if, if you yes. intentionally ran someone over, that becomes murder. If you accidentally ran someone over because you were texting, that becomes manslaughter. Yes. Which makes it very clear in that case that that intention is important, but it's not everything. So that even yes. though you didn't intend to kill someone, you still killed someone and therefore you are responsible because it was still due to your actions. If you hadn't yes. been texting while driving, that wouldn't have happened or whatever other negligence caused that that event to unfold. Right. And there's a direct crossover here that is that is very clear, that is exact, that operates exactly the same. If I have COVID-19 and I have someone who is who I know is likely to be killed by COVID-19 and I go, this is perfect. I'm going to go hang out with them and I'm going to try and give them COVID-19 and they get it and they die. I have murdered them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just as clear as if, as if you had designed a, a biological weapon yourself and you had gone and you released it in a city you have killed these people you've murdered them that that at that level where you intend to do it where you know that you're and you're actually trying to do it it's exactly the same you mentioned manslaughter manslaughter is the the point at which i'm negligent right i'm driving a car i'm responsible for where it goes because i'm in control of it i've assumed certain responsibilities by driving the car Mm -hmm. it's a heavy object moving at high speeds or often at high speeds, even when it's slow, it's extremely dangerous. And if I behave in a way that leads to someone else getting killed as and it's my fault, then I am still guilty of something. I haven't murdered them, but I have committed some kind of crime through my negligence. And I should suffer consequences as a result of that. There should be some, some, the, you were justified in using force against me to prevent me from driving cars in the future, to see to it that this never happens again, right? To, to repay the person who does it, all these other elements of justice that we get into in our episodes like the restorative justice. All of those things come into play, even though I did it accidentally. Yeah. And I, and, and the argument I think is at least unconsciously made that COVID works the exact same way. That if yes. you don't wear a mask, if you choose not to get vaccinated, and because of that you infect someone with COVID, you and they die, you are culpable. You are guilty you are of some mm-hmm. kind of negligence that may not be as much as, as as manslaughter when you're driving and texting because the negligence may not be as large, but there is some degree of negligence, mm-hmm. which is why the government does have a right to to control your actions in order to prevent that. You know, they do right. have they do have a right to require masks. They do have a right to to implement some kind of lockdown like it's still going on in other other parts of the world. You know, a great example would be Australia and the the strict laws they've implemented look insane at first glance unless you accept that premise. If you accept the premise that if you infect someone with COVID and they die, it's your fault. Then at that point, their laws start to make a lot of sense. Yes, yes, yes. And our argument depends on this fact. I'm glad you've made it that clear. Our argument depends on the fact that this is not the same and should not be treated the same. And it should be obvious that it's not the same. Uh, we could go through a th- the third the third option, right, is that someone throws themselves in front of your car. And this is 
in which case you are not culpable. Someone jumps off a building, lands right in front of you, or someone, you know, dives out in front of you. They're deliberately trying to kill themselves and you're just the convenient tool in the way. At that point, it's not manslaughter and it's not murder, right? You, you had no idea. You lacked the knowledge and you lacked and you were not acting in a way that was, uh, that was negligent. In which case, it's not your responsibility. It's tragic. It's sad, but it's not, it's not on you in any way. And if you look at COVID-19, one of the immediate problems with an illness is that an illness is not something that you control in the same way you control a car. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not a car. It's not a car. It's not a car. It's not a gun. It's not a knife. It's not your fists. It's none of those things. Those things move when I move them. And otherwise they do not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do not choose to get them. I do not choose to have them. Right. I, this is not a, there's no point where I willingly took responsibility for getting it per se. Mm-hmm. If you did, perhaps that would change things a little bit, but not, not in the critical ways we're discussing, which, which gives you this serious problem in that this thing is not acting. It's not you acting. It's acting despite you. The virus itself is culpable to a large degree for what it does, which means your culpability comes in spreading it, not in actually having it and sharing it with people. It comes in how you respond to the knowledge that you have. Uh, In that way, it's much more like an, as insurance would call it, an act of God. A virus is not something spread by human agency. It's something spread by nature. There are illnesses all over the place. You, you are constantly carrying a variety of things that you share with people, some of which will harm them. That's not on you. That's just the way the world works. That's nature. That's, that's the world we live in. Now, if you have one that is very dangerous and you do not act responsibility, you know, you know, you have it and you act negligently, that can be on you, but that's very different. That's very different. And and there's actually already a legal system in place with some legal principles that have been thought out quite a bit regarding HIV. Yeah. And HIV, Dan, is a great example because first of all, like COVID, it has high risk, you know, that if you get HIV, it's, it's not necessarily a a death sentence, but it is, it's life altering and incredibly, potentially incredibly damaging. It's very serious. And so there's, which is one of the reasons there is so much legal precedent around HIV versus something like the common cold. There's not, there's not a long list of laws about your responsibility if you spread the common cold, but there is with, with HIV. And with HIV, one of the most important things is knowledge. If you have HIV and you have no idea, you know, someone gives you HIV, they don't tell you they had HIV and now you have HIV. You have no reason to suspect you have it and you give it to someone else. You are not culpable. You are not responsible for spreading that HIV. The person who knew and gave it to you would be responsible because they had knowledge of how dangerous it was and didn't inform you and didn't take any kind of precaution to protect you, which becomes either negligence or something else if it was done with, you know, malice of forethought or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but the fact of the matter is, is that it's understood that if you give someone HIV, you did not create HIV. You did not... Right inject yourself with HIV to use it as a weapon. You were merely a carrier who was who was playing a role more as a biological function in society than as yeah. a human actor. You know, because if you get it, you had no idea and you spread it without having an idea, you're not acting in any human sense. You're doing the same thing that that mosquitoes do when they spread West Nile virus. Well, Maybe not quite that bad because no one wants to be compared to a mosquito. 
I guess you could say you're doing the same thing that <laughs> you're a parasite. You're yeah, that was a terrible example. Disease carrying. That was a terrible example. <laughs> See if you can find one more offensive. Oh, we'll wait. <laughs> <sighs> no, obviously. No, no, your point but, is good. But, obviously, but the point like, is not yeah. that that you're anything less than human, but rather that your function in spreading that disease is not a function of action, but is simply a biological function that you have no control over. You can't choose not to spread it when you have no idea that you have it. It's a it's a simple reality, and thus the laws have been built up around that fact and around how right. it works. Right. It's 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 very different. You can see how it's different than a car. You did not assume responsibility for it, right? You're you're you didn't choose you're not using the virus. You're not driving the virus, you're not in control of it. It's very, very different, which is why, as you were saying, what separates you from a biological carrier, a mosquito that happens to have a disease that it's happening to give to other things, is whether or not you know about it. Yeah, your knowledge. Whether or not you know that you have it. And that changes everything, right? That, that knowledge changes everything. At that point, you can act negligently or with malice. Um, and it matters. Until that point, you're, like you said, you're acting as any other biological creature does. You have certain things that are in you, and it's not, it's beyond your control, and it's beyond your responsibility. It's nature. No, and, and going back to the HIV thing, if, if you're that middle person who contracted HIV without knowing and passed it on without knowing, you know, let's say there does come an investigation because the person you pass it on to discovers they have it. It gets it gets back traced to you and then from you to someone else. For, instead of being considered, you know, culpable, you would actually be considered just another victim, you know, yeah. of of this either this either either an, an accident where no one knew, in which case it is, as you said before, an act of an act of God, an act of nature that swept through, you know, several human beings and caused a whole lot of damage mm -hmm. or from someone who actually did know about it and was maliciously spreading it. You know, it goes back, you know, to the to the guy who was uh, trading blankets that had smallpox on them that he knew had smallpox and trading it with Native Americans intentionally trying to give them smallpox so that they would die so that he could steal their goods. That's a great example of someone who had knowledge and was using the disease yeah. as a yeah, weapon yeah, yeah. versus you can go back to the pilgrims who were trying to escape Europe, came to the United States, simply carrying the bacteria and viruses that they've had all their lives. They go and meet with the Native Americans who are in the area. They exchange gifts. You know, they... they try and live peacefully, and then a huge number of Native Americans die because they were carrying viruses that their society was used right. to that completely wiped out the Native Americans. And that's yeah. absolutely horrible. But those pilgrims were not the same as the man who was trading those smallpox small small blankets. And to try right. and put those two groups in the same, in the same group just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And the biggest difference between those two groups is their knowledge. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely critical. Um, this also highlights a, something that's kind of tangential to the focus of our discussion, which is primarily on your moral obligation regarding illnesses and, and specifically COVID. But if this was created in a lab and through negligence it escaped, then every, or, or maliciously, I doubt it's maliciously. I can't imagine that someone would create something in a lab and then release it within anything less than thousands of miles of their lab. <laughs> it would be, it would be, or even within their own country, it would be almost unbelievable, right? Unless they're some just kind of madman. But, um, but if this was created a lab, which I suspect it is, and if this was released negligently, which I assume it is, I don't I have no reason to assume it was it was intentional. Mm -hmm. Then the culpability for the the all the unintentional deaths is on the people who created it and negligently released it. This would be this is, I think, arguably the greatest case of negligence that the world has ever seen. 
No, it's and, just and on an, it's on an insane scale. And it sheds light on you know people. People look at Rand Paul and they think he's hysterical because he's bashing on Fauci and he's bashing on Wuhan. But if you think about it logically, and it's likely that it came from Wuhan, from the Wuhan lab, then what he's doing is perfectly reasonable because what he's doing is saying, hey, if this came from the lab, then something seriously wrong happened. And it needs to be addressed, otherwise something like this could happen again. To ignore that aspect of it is insane because the root cause of why this virus got here is, as Dan's saying, the root cause of of every single one of those deaths, of every single person who was hospitalized, every single person who has long COVID and has long-term symptoms is because of that. Yeah. Not all of our legal precedents are good. Not all of our legal tradition is good, but that, that goes back to the common law. This kind of thing goes, is, is a principle that people have come to over thousands of years and will come to it in different places at different times without sharing information, right? This is, this is as sure universal principle as you can, as you can find with regards to the law that this would, that it would be just for these people to have serious consequences based on the scale of their negligence and given given what we've witnessed uh if driving a car is dangerous and demands your focus lest you harm people handling a virus that has been you know that could affect humans in ways that are unpredictable and dangerous and that are beyond the scope of the natural world you know beyond what has naturally evolved thus far something something you've created in a in a real sense even though it's through evolution in a lab, right? The, the process of creation is not out of, certainly not ex nihilo, but, uh, the, then the culpability and the, the burden on them ought to be massive. And the consequences ought to be, ought to be equivalent to, you know, someone carelessly driving into a crowd is a drop in the ocean compared to the harm that this has caused. Well, and, and, and of course, there'll, there'll be a lot of questions about was there negligence or were standard practices not enough? And if standard practices aren't, aren't enough, then in that case, it becomes less about punishment and more about an overhaul of this entire system. You know what I mean? Right. If, if, if the Wuhan lab simply followed standard practices and standard practices are insufficient for what they're dealing with, that's still important that we figure that out so that we can change those standard practices and change how we look at any kind of gain of function or or research in general involving super contagious, you know, viruses. Right. Right. Well, and you bring up a great point in regards to in regards to the common law principles, you would say the fact that they were handling it and that they harmed a lot of people is the negligence that 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 regardless of whether they're following the the international safety standards there's been some gross negligence um unless unless i guess no you're right unless unless there is something truly beyond their knowledge but that's one of the things i hate about uh those kind of standards is they they always provide cover for people who often knew they should have been acting differently but they were meeting the standards. And so they, so they didn't act differently because they know, they know if they meet the standards, they won't be held culpable because the mm-hmm. standards are the, they become the standard of negligence as you were just describing. And I think that's a, that's a mistake. I think that's where often bureaucracy uh, gets in the way. The real question is their knowledge versus what they were doing. Um, and, uh, and, and, and even then, even their knowledge actually isn't enough to excuse them in this case because they didn't have to be handling it, right? They're not merely carriers. They're the creators. They're the ones who are going through the process. So even the unintended and unknowable consequences of their actions fall on them. Just as if I were, if I were experimenting with a nuclear, you know, with a nuclear, uh, device in my house, the fact that I don't know that it might explode. Or, you know, that I don't know that what I'm about to do will cause it to detonate and kill everybody is irrelevant. It's, I have made certain decisions that are going to make me culpable for the actions that I didn't have to make, right? I don't, I'm not, I'm not some unintentional carrier of a virus. I'm a deliberate actor who is then responsible for the consequences of their actions. No, it's an excellent point that it is very different when you're choosing to open Pandora's box. You are, by definition, accepting a greater degree of responsibility. Right. 
And at that point, that means the negligence starts to reside in those who decided to do that research in the first point, which once again brings us back to Rand Paul investigating who authorized this gain-of-function research, who was the one who was pushing to to do yeah. these things that we're doing in the Wuhan lab in the first place. But anyways, this is not supposed right. to be about Rand Paul and Fauci and the Wuhan lab. Or the lab. Wuhan lab. <laughs> but it does illustrate... But you can see how it... Yes, it, we're looking for culpability. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're looking for culpability. And the, in the, the majority of the culpability must rest on them is, is, in, is consistent with the principles that we accept for punishing people. For, I keep saying punishing. I don't like that word. I don't think that's the purpose of justice at all. But, but for following justice, these principles apply, applied in this sphere. That's how they operate. That's, that's who it would fall on. Now, individual actors, again, are responsible based on their knowledge. So if I get COVID-19 I, and, I, and I, uh, I don't think you, I would say that knowledge at, at this point, because of how commonly dispersed uh, information about the symptoms and things are and the availability of, of free tests and things, I think you could be culpable for, uh, for your actions with regard to COVID-19 if you have significant symptoms and you don't investigate whether that's COVID or you don't take the appropriate precautions. Or, or you do you investigate, could, you get a test and you don't do anything about it. And you, yeah, obviously then, then if you know you have COVID or you, or it's very likely and you're not taking the steps necessary to, to fully know, um, then at that point you are a culpable actor, right? You, you know, you're a carrier, you're not a willing carrier, hopefully, likely, but at that point, your actions in the world have a different obligation. You should act differently because this is not merely a cold. This is not merely the flu, which we accept is something unavoidable. And I do think COVID-19 is unavoidable. I really do. Um, at some point you're going to get it or you're going to, and, and maybe you've already got the vaccine at that point, And when you get it, you don't even notice, right? Your symptoms are so mild or, or whatever happens. You're, your infection is so quickly fought off that you don't realize you're ever, you've even been infected. Uh, whatever the case, at that point, your obligations are different and you could act negligently because you now have knowledge that you were carrying this thing. Mm-hmm. And the standard of HIV, again, is a good one. Though HIV is much harder to spread. <laughs> In some cases the, here, the, the people you're living with and things like that, that's obviously not on you. You can't necessarily go live in the mountains until you're done with COVID. I was about to say, especially when, especially when the the guidance that's being offered by the authorities is to return home and and to stay at home regardless of whether or not you're able to distance from your immediate family in that home. Since most people can't, most people don't have yeah. the kind of you know, I don't I don't have a West Wing and an East Wing in my house where I can, you know, I'll be in the West Wing and you family can be in the East Wing. Right, right. And your family wouldn't want you to. And if they did, then that's then that's on them. They can leave, right? If you're in the household, I think you have to say that if you're in the household, you've accepted the risk of you're going to get whatever everyone else in the household gets, generally speaking. There are people, there are some extreme cases. I heard of a, a lady who who uh locked her daughter in a room basically i think it was a daughter in a room in their house and wouldn't let her out basically quarantined her in their house and didn't interact with her for whatever the weeks were that were prescribed at the time i think that was a massive mistake and probably much more akin to abuse than uh than that but but perhaps she had enough risk factors that it was you know that that maybe maybe yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna condemn that but uh, but obviously that's not good for the child and in other circumstances that would be unequivocally child abuse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of course in extreme situations you're making trade-offs so uh, no but I suppose without knowing the details what you're I won't saying, judge Dan, that. is that when it comes to COVID and culpability there's a very logical approach that makes sense ethically in, in the terms that we've looked at it that matches up with with legal precedent in regards to how things like HIV and and other and other transmissible diseases are have been looked at in the past and that also makes sense for today which is that there are many tools that allow you to 
to find out if you have COVID. There's lots of information and resources that let you know what to look for to find out if you have COVID. And then if you get COVID, you know, the the state or county health department will contact you, will inform you that you have COVID just in case you made a mistake in reading, you know, whatever your positive test result was and tell you what you need to do in order to protect others so that your obligation is very clear, your responsibility is very clear. And then after that point, if you choose to spread it to others, there is culpability and there is responsibility. But short of that, there is... it. It's not nearly so clear that you hold culpability. And that's where we run into a problem with this generalized culpability that people are arguing for today in regards to COVID. Because what they're arguing is that you could get COVID and you could even get COVID and not know about it. And because of that possibility, we have a right to treat you as if you have COVID and to start implementing those restrictions right now. And and that is a far cry from from the other option. Those two are not the same. And it's 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 insane to say that they are. No, right, right. You you made a comparison when we were talking about HIV uh before this episode. Um that you could you could say that the best way for me not to get HIV is to enforce everyone using protection all the time. Mm-hmm. That would you, there are ways that there are things rules that you could enforce, or to say, or to say, you know, no, no contact that could spread HIV. You could, you know, you could make if if the only acceptable way is to mitigate all risk, not just follow the principles of culpability as a human actor and these other mm-hmm. things, but to eliminate all risk. Uh, then your policy and your legal principles and responsibilities would look extremely different. And if you followed the logic that people are using with COVID in regards to that and applied it to other spheres, it would be insane. It would, it would be insane. It really would be. There's a reason that you look for the principles of the of it and you build from there so that you have something consistent, internally consistent and applicable in all scenarios, right? Something that though, though it looks Otter with regards to viruses than it does to other things with with illness, as we were talking about. This discussion is going to look different than if we were discussing murdering someone with a car. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's you can see that the principles are the same. That what's different is that the circumstances require you to think a little bit differently because you are a carrier who may or may not know it, rather than an operator using a tool. Um, and, and that's, that's the main difference. It's, it's nature. Nature is far more involved in the spreading of a virus than it is in the driving of a car, <laughs> as you might, as you might imagine. Um, you were, you made a point that I wanted to comment on, uh, that was, I think was really important. Um, there are, obviously you can waive the culpability of an actor by assuming the risk. You could, I, I've been to, gatherings and i'm sure you've had experience with the same thing brad and, and probably everybody has at this point someone who says look i have some symptoms of covid the problem is covid symptoms include every symptom of illness <laughs> i'm aware of it really does like go look at the list they've been they've become so i want to say it used to be much more narrow but at this point if you have a cough or a runny nose or a sore throat or flu or you know stomach or, ache, or a headache or right, anything they've 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 become so general that they're no longer useful. But setting that aside, someone will say to you, "I have a symptom of COVID. I have not been tested. We're having this get together. I want you to be aware of that." Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That that is entirely acceptable. And if you waive your, if you say that risk is acceptable to me, right? You waive the culpability. They've told you that they may be a a carrier. Mm -hmm. They have satisfied their obligation to you. They really have. They don't need to do more. Now, you might demand more of them. You might say, I really think you should get a test. And then let me know. And Mm -hmm. then I'd be comfortable. And that's fine. Or you can say, you know, that's enough for me. Yeah. I doubt you have, if that's your only symptom, 
or even if you do have COVID. Or you go the other way and say, well, it's not worth the risk for me. And so I'm not going to attend that event or I'm not going to be a part of that gathering. Yes, yes. And people have been much better, I feel like, at disclosing illnesses at events that uh, since COVID-19 started. I think that's probably probably a healthy thing to have been doing from the start. People have become more conscientious about that. And I and that's good. I think that I think that discloses disclosing your I think that what's the word I'm looking for? I think that is your duty with regards to other people so that you are not acting in an unjust way. Yeah, and, and and which is which is not the worst thing. I words are hard, Dan. I want to say something, <laughs> but sometimes it's hard to 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 put words together in right. meaningful sentences that are at least somewhat coherent. Yeah. But what, what, but what I want to say is I want to distill yeah. this idea that what we're talking about here is we're ta- when we're talking about viruses, when we're talking about sicknesses, is that. As carriers, our responsibility is different. And a way to illustrate that is, is the fact that you can do nothing and be a carrier. You know what I mean? That I go about my ordinary life. You know, I, I, I work at my job because I have to. And I, I have to be around these people because I have to. You know, I have, I have to do certain things that are in order to survive, right? In order to live in this world, these are things that I have to do. And in the process of doing that, there's a decent chance that I might contract COVID. And as part of contracting COVID, I might then spread COVID as that carrier. But just because that's happening does not mean that I'm morally responsible for that spread as that carrier. When I have no knowledge, when I'm not doing anything except for living, I'm not intentionally contracting COVID. I'm not going to a COVID party where I'm trying to get COVID. And yet I contract COVID and then spread it does not mean that I am guilty of a crime or guilty of some moral wrongdoing. And yet when people talk about COVID, they talk about it in those terms in many senses. And I think that's, right. I think that's wrong. I think that's a serious problem. And I think it's a yeah. problem when they say things like, because, because I know, I know what the, the response to all of this is. The response to all of this is, okay, well, we're not asking you to stop going to work. We're not asking you to stay home. We're, we're not doing lockdowns right now. What we're saying is go to work, but wear a mask and take the vaccine because that is your obligation to society because it's going to decrease the risk that those around you get COVID. And and, techni- and yes, they're right that that does decrease the risk. But the problem is, is that now we're talking about risk again instead of talking about culpability and moral responsibility because i don't have a moral responsibility to To mitigate risk for others everyone has their own and we talked about this in the first episode but we we didn't do as good a job as i'd like to of distinguishing between the two there is a difference between risk mitigation risk mitigation excuse (laughs) me words again risk mitigation and culpability Everyone has their has a right to mitigate risk in their own life in whatever way they see fit. And masks and vaccines are a great way to do that because they do mitigate that risk, especially if you're high at risk for COVID. You know, vaccines are effective. If you're low at risk, it may not be the most wise thing to mitigate that risk, but that's a choice that you get to make. But when you say that in order to, in order to mitigate risk for me, I'm going to require you to do something that becomes, like Dan said before, requiring abstinence for everyone in the world in order to guarantee that I don't get HIV. And that's neither just nor sensible. Right. It's a principle you should be able to see as absurd by trying to apply it to other circumstances. You could say uh, um, the risk of driving is, is so high. Driving kills a ridiculous amount of people every year and car accidents and things. Um, so we've we've decided to mitigate some risks in there. Things like uh, uh, DUI laws are a good example of of a direct attempt to mitigate risk. But why stop there? Why are we allowing people to drive? If if the if zero is the acceptable number, if there is an objectively acceptable amount of risk, what is it? How do we find it? Mm-hmm. And how do we get to it? Mm-hmm. Because that would be the moral basis of this, right? You, otherwise. Otherwise, it's just arbitrary 
and it just depends on the subjective risk assessment of the individual doing the assessing. It's just one person's subjective risk assessment imposed on everybody. Yeah. Right. That's, that's ultimately what it, what it is. If you accept the, the basic premise that risk ought to be mitigated by force, that we ought to use violence to reduce risk. And, and one clarification, Dan, is, is that I'm arguing is it doesn't matter if it's not subjective, even if they are objectively right, which in the case of driving, they are requiring, forcing everyone to no longer drive and only having mass public transportation is much safer. You know, if you compare taking the subway to riding a car, you know, you're going to be safer. The the number of casualties is, is lower. You know, you'll be better off, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. A, A large number of transportation methods is safer. And so even objectively, not just subjectively, even objectively, if your goal is to mitigate risk, which is what we're talking about with COVID, that is the purpose of the vaccine, that is the purpose of the masks, because we've already clarified that it's not about culpability and res- it is about risk mitigation. And that's why we talked about it in our episode earlier. Mm-hmm. No, and, and I agree with you. The uh, You're right that there are things you can do that would objectively lower the risk. The, the probability of something happening. Uh, the subjective element is is what level of risk is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're, you can do things that yeah, will objectively yeah. lower okay, it, I see what but you're, you're, saying. you're ultimately aiming for a subjective level. Gotcha. Now right? I understand. So, which is, you're right. And I'm glad you pointed out that there are, because if that confusion happened, people would. <laughs> I just want to make people understand teamwork, that, teamwork. that we understand that objectively, if your goal is to get rid of COVID-19, if, or if your goal is to mitigate the risk of COVID-19 above everything else, yeah. then yes, you should require everyone to get the vaccine and require everyone to wear masks 24-7 and probably implement some other things. You'd probably require everyone to get ivermectin and everyone to only <clears throat> engage in social interactions that are literally necessary for life. And all of those things would be measures that would mitigate that risk and reduce the spread but the reason people aren't doing that is because they understand that that's well they understand that people wouldn't allow that because people have made their own risk assessments and realized that's not subjectively yeah. worth it for them yeah every single one of those has trade-offs mm-hmm. and every single one of those trade-offs is is going to be weighed against the subjective goals of the of the individual and uh as you were saying uh if if we're going to mitigate risk for health things, the first thing we should do is start making everybody exercise. Force everyone because to there are far more there are lives. far more problems, right? And then the other one is eating healthy. You would get people exercising and get them eating better, and you would have much better health across the board. You would not only mitigate the risk for COVID, but you'd start reducing cancer and all kinds of other things. And right? Heart other disease. Things that, I mean, heart disease alone, you could save disease, millions yeah. of lives every year by having mandatory healthy eating and exercise, you know, ban all right. sorts of junk food, simply get rid of it. Right. And you'd say, well, wait, wait, that, that, they don't pose a risk to me though. Oh, they do. They, they could have a heart attack while they're driving a car. And at the very least, they are, they are uh, devouring the public funds that go into all the things that, that fund public goods mm-hmm. through the healthcare costs, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's always an argument you could make to try and run somebody's life for them. Mm-hmm. There's always an argument. There's mm-hmm. always a thread there. It connects to you somehow. Of course it does. Everyone affects everyone else yeah, to some degree. Yeah, because we're all interconnected. If I'm less productive right. in my day, that's reducing the total amount of production in the world and this less goods. And so therefore, theoretically, you actually have less available to you. Yeah. One of my favorite straw men arguments against positions like ours is, the, is when they say you – you believe that you live on an island like an isolation and no one's life affects you, but everyone's decisions affect everyone else. Of course they do. <laughs> yes, they do. The question is, at what points can we force them to do differently? Mm-hmm. That's the question. At what point is it, is there, at what, where is the line between an up, between when I should be trying to persuade them and when I should be holding a gun to their head and telling them they have to do what I've asked? And that is a, that is obviously a, there's a massive difference between those. And the moral obligation on me to find that line is huge. That's the line of justice. Right? That's the line between 
when I should be saying, hey, you should probably be nicer and when I should be throwing you in jail so that you don't harm anyone else, right? Preventing you from getting out of the populace as a, because you're a threat or something like that. It's, it's two entirely different worlds. And if you can't see that there must be a line between those actions and that that line is going to be absolutely critical in how we should handle the problem, then, uh, well, I'd, I'd be worried about anyone who can't see a moral difference between trying to persuade and trying to force someone. <laughs> yeah. hopefully, hopefully that's as clear as it can be without any, without any belaboring the point. Um, but you're absolutely right about how, so, so you've got the clear principles of, of culpability regarding behavior with regards to the virus and you getting it and spreading it. The argument is that if you, the risk argument goes further in that it says, if you do not do this, the virus is going to adapt and it's going to be a threat to them again in the future. Uh, and as I said, I think it's inevitable that everybody's going to get exposed to the virus in all its iterations at some point, or at least in some of its iterations, its dominant iterations. Um, so in which case, those not getting the vaccine, people argue, are guaranteeing that the people who have gotten the vaccine will eventually get sick again. And that's just not, at the practical level, that's not true. That's not how first it works. Of all, you could, you could first, you could give it at the practical level, as we've discussed before, the Delta variant came from India. There are places in the world that simply lack the wealth and the power to do, to take the precautions we have. The virus is going to bounce around there until it achieves new forms and it's going to spread from there and it's going to do that every year or a couple years or whatever, however these cycles work, right? However they work, we're going to see it. this. The COVID strain is with us. The COVID, I guess, strain is the particular type. COVID-19 is with us for the rest of our existence, likely. I, I doubt we'll be able to cure it any more than we'd be able to cure the, the flu for the same reason. It spreads the same ways. Mm -hmm. It attacks a lot of the same systems. Right? It's a, it, for the same reasons we can't obliterate one, we can't obliterate the other. And if the vaccines were 100% effective, then maybe we could. They're not. And they're crucially not. Anything less than that, and you can't obliterate it. Even if you forced everybody to give it that. And the Delta variant is obviously already attacking people that don't have it. I mean, the, in the practical world, you can't get rid of COVID-19. You're going to get it again. Your, your vaccine right now is probably not going to be enough in five years for whatever's going around, for whatever form of COVID-19 is, is there at that time. And that's going to be there if you forced everyone to get vaccinated and if you didn't. It might be different. There might be a different timeline, etc. But but going back to uh, the the ethical argument of forcing the unvaccinated to get vaccinated in order to protect the vaccinated against the variant is the same. It goes back to that risk because we're talking about at that point you are purely talking about a hypothetical. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're talking about a chance that something could percolate amongst the unvaccinated that can infect the vaccinated. It's like going back to driving a car. There's a chance that you, while driving your car, can injure me, and therefore I have the right to not allow you to ever drive a car, and thus the government has a right to shut down transportation in general. And that's exactly yeah. what what you're talking about when it comes to, to requiring the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. It's not the same as requiring them to not drive a car, but it is the same if you're talking about using force, that you're using force against someone who hasn't done anything wrong, who hasn't done anything to harm someone else. And that's where it becomes unethical. Right, right. And they're not an imminent threat. Mm -hmm. That's that's the way they're being treated. They're being treated like a person about to commit a crime. No, and, <laughs> or and they're, they're being treated like someone committing a crime. But even if you were to say they're they're on the verge of it right they're the they're basically have a loaded gun and it's just a question of when they shoot you with it and and if you remember a year ago as as covid was coming out something they really wanted to focus on was contact tracing is figuring out who's getting it from who so that they can then inform those people and stop them from spreading and that was supposed to be an effective method and i don't know what happened dan but it hasn't worked. And so maybe instead of talking about all these mandates, we should figure out why we're not able to effectively trace the spread and then implement not lockdowns, but quarantine for those who are infected so that we can stop the infection from spreading. Because if contact tracing and quarantining had quarantining was effective, 
then this wouldn't even be a debate right now because we actually could isolate and stop the spread. And mm-hmm. maybe that's something that's worth looking into because that is a a more ethical approach to dealing with things like, you know, the unvaccinated causing the vaccinated to get sick. Yes. And it's something that certainly would be useful in the future. I mean, right now where there's so many cases, it would be a lost cause. But but yes, for future pandemics, for future uh, things like this, some kind of understanding of what went wrong seems like it'd be extremely helpful. <laughs> why, why that wasn't something that could happen uh, would be really helpful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's lots of interesting questions and in practical about how to solve the problem as well as we can practically. Uh, but hopefully this episode has been useful for clarifying our moral, why we think from a moral position, not just from a practical position, but from a moral position that it would be wrong to, to have vaccine mandates. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.